It's Monday, April 8th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Today we are talking about the cold case factory. After the capture of the Golden State Killer exposed many to forensic genealogy last April, many cold cases have been solved using this technique of combining DNA analysis and family tree building. One company who has worked with several law enforcement entities and has had a lot of success in solving over 30 cold case murders just last year is Parabon Nanolabs. Writer and journalist Sarah Weinman joins us to discuss how Parabon has gotten so good at solving cold cases using forensic genealogy and the bigger question, how this crime-solving game-changer will hold up in court. Next, we've talked about deepfake videos before, but deepfake audio is not far behind and companies are already working on trying to identify fakes before it's too late. Experts say that great deepfake audio is only a couple years away and is most likely to supercharge political mayhem, spam calls, and white-collar crimes. Kaveh Waddell, emerging tech reporter for Axios, joins us to talk about the future of fake audio. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Genealogy has been around a while, and it sort of grew out of what was initially called and still called genetic genealogy. And so it's essentially people who want to figure out their ancestry and build family trees in combination with DNA testing. Every week I check up on them just because I'm interested to see what kind of work they're doing. And I feel as if every day another cold case is being solved or at least being reported on as being solved. And Parabon is mentioned as helping to bring this about. Joining us now is Sarah Weinman, crime writer and journalist. She wrote this piece that we're going to talk about specifically for topic, but she's also the author of The Real Lolita, The Kidnapping of Sally Horner. This is one of those topics that I've been fascinated with for some time now. Just to put it in context for a lot of people, it was last April when the announcement of the arrest of a suspect in the Golden State Killer case Joseph James D'Angelo blew open this notion about forensic genealogy and how it's being used to solve cold cases. In that specific case, he was accused of doing stuff in the 70s and the 80s, raping women, killing people. And it was all because of forensic genealogy that were able to track him down and make that arrest. But there's this one company in particular, it's called Parabon Nanolabs who is kind of at the forefront of a lot of this. Last year, I think they helped solve at least 30 cold cases with regards to this forensic genealogy. Let's start off the way you started your article for Topic about April Tinsley. April Tinsley, her story and her murder really upset me from the time that I first heard about it, just because it felt to me such a travesty that her case had not been solved. There were what seemed to me so much evidence. There were the notes. There was physical evidence. There was obscene material left at the scene. There were instances happening soon after her murder and then 16 years later in 2004. And in a way, just like the Golden State Killer, when there was so much evidence and no sign of a culprit, the frustration really mounts, not just for people on the outside who are paying attention to these cases, but of course for law enforcement. And so even as scientific technology becomes more sophisticated, so for example, with April's murder, there was no DNA evidence that was tested because those techniques 
were not commonly used until a few years later. She disappeared in 1988. So this this was before these methods had really improved. There was DNA testing, but you needed so much material and it was so prohibitively expensive that it just wasn't practical for police detectives and crime labs to do this. Now you can just test the tiniest amount of material. And so the possibilities for figuring out who a suspect might be are all the greater. And so what interests me also about April's case, aside from just feeling a personal connection to it, was the fact that when the culprit was finally caught, It was through this forensic genealogy method, especially as employed by this company, Parabon Nanolab, and that there had already been a history between the company and law enforcement. They'd used a different technique called snapshot phenotyping, and that got them partway, but it didn't get them to the finish line in that they couldn't arrest a suspect. And then when Parabon came back and say, we're now doing genealogy testing with a forensic eye so that maybe we can catch potential killers, would you be interested? And of course, the Fort Wayne folks said yes. And through these genealogical tools, they were able to focus attention on two brothers. And based on further DNA testing that they were able to do in, in-house in the lab, they were able to arrest a man named John Miller, who'd been essentially living in the community this entire time. He had never raped or killed anyone else, only April. And because of the amount of evidence against him, he was able to plead guilty and will essentially serve the rest of his life in prison. Yeah, I mean, he was hiding in plain sight. Neighbors always felt he was a little weird. He was kind of strange, often angry. He didn't marry. He kept to himself. Let's move on to a little bit more about Parabon Nanolabs. As I said, they've helped solve at least 30 cases last year. I know the number has gone up since then a little bit. Every week I check up on them just because I'm interested to see what kind of work they're doing. And I feel as if every day another cold case is being solved or at least being reported on as being solved and Parabon is mentioned as helping to bring this about. Describe to us forensic genealogy. How does it work? And just explain it for people who are still a little unaware of it. Forensic genealogy has been around a while and it sort of grew out of what was initially called and still called genetic genealogy. And so it's essentially people who want to figure out their ancestry and build family trees in combination with DNA testing. So there are big private companies like Ancestry.com and 23andMe where you can send in a sample of your own DNA, usually saliva or from a cheek swab, and you get results back that give an idea of general demographics, where your ancestors might have hailed from, and also getting more specific about possible common ancestors with other people. And so genetic genealogy has helped in a whole slew of different types of cases, looking for missing heirs, finance-related things, but also in terms of identifying John and Jane Doe's. Those are people who have been found dead or murdered, suspicious circumstances, and they've never been identified. And so in the genealogy community, people were really aware that these techniques could potentially be used to solve cases and to help figure out culprits. But there was a real ethical quandary that should family history be used this way. And it really took the Golden State Killer case catching Joseph D'Angelo, who again was someone who hid in plain sight, who after 1986 has not been found to have committed any heinous crimes along the lines of the ones that he did from the mid to late 70s on through 1986. But to your point, that was some of the early conversations that were happening when news of the Golden State Killer came out, the ethical quandary of it. These people signed up 
to have their DNA on these websites. They didn't sign up to help police catch killers or link your, your second cousin to something like this. And a lot of these uh, DNA companies, uh, genealogy sites, changed their privacy settings so that people knew that it was a possibility that law enforcement would be using these databases. The main company in particular that made those changes and the one that was really under scrutiny after the arrest of the suspect in the Golden State Killer case was one called GEDmatch. And that, unlike Ancestry of 23andMe, which are private databases, this is a public database. It's for free. It's accessible to anyone. And what it does is essentially taking a translation of your DNA sequence, sort of like a code, and you can upload it and that will produce possible names of people who are related to you. What law enforcement did is they took this code of the unknown suspect for the Golden State Killer case and uploaded it to GEDmatch, and it produced a series of names. And based on that, they then did further investigation and were able to get a warrant for DNA belonging to D'Angelo, tested it, yeah. and there was a match. And so once that happened, and the announcement of the arrest happened, then there was a sense in the genealogy community that it gave them permission and cover to go ahead and use their techniques in a more concerted way for the solving of cold cases. And so here we are just about a year after D'Angelo was caught and arrested, and dozens upon dozens upon dozens of cold cases have now seen resolution thanks to forensic genealogy. And so what I also found is that as I was hearing about these stories, this one company, Parabon Nanolabs, kept reappearing over and over and over again. Alabama specifically just had another cold case solved. It was a decades-old double murder that actually used the services of Parabon Nanolabs, and that just happened uh, very early this month. And a lot of it is due in part to Cece Moore. She's the lead genealogist for Parabon. Tell us how she got involved in all this. Moore is a fascinating and complex woman, and I am really interested in her story. She had begun life as an actress and as a singer, and genealogy was a hobby. And then as often happens, the acting and singing work can sometimes dry up as a woman approaches the ages of 40, because Hollywood is not always kind. Right. And so she decided to pursue genealogy in a more concerted way and got very interested in the application of genealogy research and DNA testing. And she's really become the go-to media person when people need to know about how forensic genealogy works. Yeah. Parabon and the woman I spoke with who works there, the director of bioinformatics, Dr. Ellen Graytuck, she had told me that they were getting interested in what forensic genealogy could do and how it could be applied to the work that they were already doing, especially in terms of taking DNA and trying to build out composite sketches or what potential eye color or hair color of somebody might look like. And so when they were seeing what was happening in the genetic genealogy community, and I think for them too, that they kept seeing some of the same names reoccur over and over. It's a very, very small community. There are only a handful of people, and especially a handful of women, who have the wherewithal and the expertise to do this kind of work in the way that C.C. Moore does this kind of work. And so they kept seeing her name occur. They kept seeing her. So they started talking, and something was going to happen anyway. But then, of course, when the Golden State Killer case got resolved, it became much more critical and it became much more of a possibility that they could work well together. And so they did formalize that deal and CC joined on as a full-time employee, as did 
a handful of other genealogists who work with her. They just have been doing such tremendous work ever since. Totally. The next phase of this is now how these things will hold up in court. We're going to see that happen with the Golden State Killer case. A lot of the cold cases that Parabon Labs has solved, either the suspects had either passed away or they've already been committed of other crimes, so they're already in jail. This is going to be the next part of it. How it was explained to me, and I do buy this thinking, is that Parabon in particular views forensic genealogy as a tool that can help point towards a possible suspect, but it can't be the thing that points to the suspect. So the way I thought of it for myself was this was like a presumptive test, but you still have to confirm this presumption and confirmation only comes from the actual testing of DNA, the actual matching of this DNA profile to a suspect within a minuscule amount of probability. I view forensic genealogy as being kind of at the stage where DNA testing itself was about 30 years ago was this new technique. It's prohibitively expensive. So most government agencies and crime labs are not going to be using it unless there's a real need or it's like a last resort. Each analysis costs upwards of $5,000 that Parabon does. So they do get expensive, but it's just a fascinating look into how far we've come with DNA this forensic genealogy method now seems to be a game changer in crime solving. And it's just going to be interesting to see how this continues to progress and, and how much more we get out of this. Sarah Weinman, crime writer, journalist, author of The Real Lolita, The Kidnapping of Sally Horner. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Kindrop, they're an audio biometrics company, and they've been playing around with Ellen DeGeneres' voice. They say honesty is the best policy. It is. Actually, honesty is one of the qualities I find most attractive in a person. It's sort of hard to put your finger on, but it's got some characteristic like vowel pattern or, or something. But if you hadn't told listeners that it's Ellen, I bet most would have been able to guess. Joining us now is Kaveh Waddell. Emerging tech reporter for the Axios Future newsletter. We're going to be talking about deep fakes. We've previously talked about video deep fakes and how really good they're getting now. I mean, people use these kind of AI machine learning things to superimpose somebody else's face on somebody else's body, and it looks almost seamless. You can't really tell a lot of times anymore. But we're also going to be talking about deep fake audio, which has attracted considerably less attention. It's just not as good as the video and the imaging is right now. But a lot of companies are really working to defend against it before it's too late. Tell us a little bit about this, Kaveh. Video deepfakes have gotten a whole lot of attention from researchers. They're more flashy. You can see them on YouTube. They're actually very impressive. And at this point, you can make them at home with free software that's out there. Uh, you know, it takes some time and a little bit of technical savvy, but it's gotten to a point that it's, it's basically open source. Whereas with, with audio deepfakes, that's not the case. The research isn't quite there yet. The outputs aren't as clear. They're sort of clearly still a little bit robotic. But what researchers and defenders here see is an opportunity to, to kind of get ahead of the ball. With video deepfakes, it kind of exploded before there was a lot of understanding of what the problem was, before the, the public really even, you know, even had a chance to know what was about to happen, right. and before defenders had a chance to come up with good ways to automatically detect videos that were generated or manipulated with AI. So so this is what one researcher called to me a, a rare chance to start building up the defenses before the floodgates open. Let's take a quick step back and describe to me what the overall worry is with deepfakes. One thing that 
that researchers often bring up when I'm talking to them is the Access Hollywood tape that came out during the Trump campaign where he was saying certain things that um, that he apologized for and acknowledged were his. If deepfake audio were uh, something that were widespread and well understood, you could imagine a world where, no, he could say, no, that wasn't me. That was a manipulated clip. And in fact, as recently as November, he has started going around telling some of his closer advisors that he no longer wants to say that it was real. So one thing that audio and any kind of deepfake does is sort of opens up this window to always questioning the kind of evidence that was once sterling, the kind of evidence that you could confront someone in power with and say, hey, we got you on tape saying this. There's no shrinking back from this anymore. So experts say right now we're a few years away still from this being really, really good. Describe to us the two ways that we use AI to make these audio is modulation and and synthesis. And then we'll play actually a, a little clip of what one company specifically is doing with this deepfake audio already. But describe to us those two uh, forms of uh, these deepfakes. So modulation, you can kind of imagine if you ever had as a kid or if you've ever seen on TV, those those voice boxes, you talk into them and then in real time outputs this like scary monster voice. Right. It's like a voice changer. Exactly. A voice changer. Yeah. yeah. The idea of modulation is that AI can help do that. But instead of coming out with a gnarled, weird, clearly not human voice, it can change my voice into yours or it can change my voice into President Trump. More generally, it can make female voices male. It can make American voice voices sound British as with most AI systems, the way that's done is by training on a large data set of the target speech. And on the other side, synthesis, this gets into the more fun territory, I guess you could say. This is, you can type something in basically, and an AI system will spit it out in the voice that you want to hear. There's companies that are doing that one already. One of them is called Pindrop. They're an audio biometrics company, and they've been playing around with Ellen DeGeneres' voice. So let's hear that one really quick, and then we can talk a little bit more about it. They say honesty is the best policy. It is. Actually, honesty is one of the qualities I find most attractive in a person. That one really does sound like Ellen DeGeneres. You just have that little robotic voice and the pacing that's really hard to to get away from. You can kind of tell that it's not real, but the voice itself does sound like Ellen DeGeneres. It does. You know, it's, it's sort of hard to put your finger on, but it's got some characteristic like vowel pattern or, or something. But if you hadn't told listeners that it's Ellen, I bet most would have been able to guess. Pindrop made this. They are trying to learn how to synthesize the best possible AI voices in order to train their defenses. And that's because they work with big banks and big insurance companies. And they're afraid, their CEO was telling me over the phone recently, that the next wave of attacks on these big banks and insurance companies is going to be over the phone with synthetic audio. They're already wow. seeing some modulation attacks where uh, you know a scammer might call in and speak with a female voice, even if they're a man, in order to throw off automatic sensors that might have that person's voice fingerprint. Since they, since they think that the, that the next wave of attacks is going to be synthetic audio, they're training up their defenses with voices like the Ellen voice it's, that we just heard. It's so interesting. And it is all about getting ahead of the spread of this type of fake audio. So it's important to work on these fixes now and, and detecting these things. I know they're training computers to listen for little inaudible hints. They'll be able to tell that it's a fake voice and all. And I just now imagine a future where all audio and video is going to have to be double checked. We're going to have to put it through some type of other computer system, kind of like how we check mail for malware and whatnot to see if it's fake or not. <laughs> it's just like it's going to eventually get so good that we're going to be having to fight with this all the time. So defending against audio deepfakes before it's too late is the next thing for a lot of these companies. 
Kaveh Waddell, emerging tech reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.